join Beer Edge for our first live event, Inspired by Beer, an evening with Tommy Arthur of the Lost Abbey and Port Brewing. During this Boston-area tasting, listen in as Tommy discusses beers that have inspired him in his brewing career, plus drink a few of his own creations. The fun happens on January 30th. Find tickets and more information at BeerEdge.com. I'm John Hall. This is Drink Beer, Think Beer, the podcast that gets to the bottom of every pint. And this is Matt Linscombe of Fremont Brewing in Seattle. So that I knew I had that understanding through failure. Um, and the rest of it was curiosity. I think as brewers, if you're not driven first by curiosity, um, you probably won't end up in a good place because, you know, there are too many headwinds that push against you. Um, too many people who say it's good or bad or whatever it is. Um, so it really was just that pure curiosity, which I hope drives the best of the craft brewers today. Our full conversation recorded in Breckenridge, Colorado is up next. But first, this episode is brought to you by Cigar City Brewing Company. The brewery has really cemented itself as one of the great wood-aged beer purveyors. So why not take your love of their talents to the next level and consider a membership to the El Catador Club? It's the brewery's barrel-aged beer club, and for an annual fee, you'll receive one 750-milliliter bottle of seven different barrel-aged beers that are released periodically. Plus, you get a discount in the brewery tasting room and at the Oscar Blues Tap Room in Boulder, Colorado. A membership also comes with access to member-only events. Space is limited, and you can learn more at CigarCityBrewing.com. And this podcast is produced by Beer Edge, the newsletter for beer professionals. A subscription to Beer Edge provides readers with smart and critical insights into the business and culture of beer. We talk directly to the players making an impact and report stories our audience has not heard before. The team at Beer Edge offers up a fresh and unfiltered look at the world of beer. Subscribe at BeerEdge.com. Hi everybody, I'm John Hall and when it opened a decade ago, Fremont was the sixth brewery to open in Seattle. The scene has changed tremendously since then, and the brewery has grown from a small operation to one with over 100 employees, producing around 55,000 barrels of beer per year. What hasn't changed, says owner Matt Linscombe, is a commitment to sustainability. Now, sustainability is a word that is used a lot in the brewing industry. People talk about their initiatives and best intentions for a greener planet, but it becomes harder and harder to do and practice as a business grows. So for Matt, who has worked as an attorney, community activist, and an environmentalist, it's important to keep a laser-like focus on the brewery's goals and objectives. We got together during the recent Big Beers, Belgians, and Barley Wines Festival to talk about growth, the brewery's barrel-aged program, which includes gems like Rusty Nail, and the frustration, promise of, and benefits of organic ingredients in beer. The brewery has a saying, because beer matters. And so that's where I wanted to start the conversation. Here it is. The brewery slogan is because beer matters. Yeah. What does that mean? Uh, well, uh, it means a lot of things based on where the time is. But at the start of it, um, so it was for me 11 years ago, but we've been in business for 10. Um, beer matters because beer touches some of the key things that I think are important for me. Um, community. Beer at its best should form community. So in our business at Fremont, we have an urban beer garden. We were the first beer garden in the city. Everyone else was a brew pub. Um, and we exclude no one. We have no bar. We have no TV, and we don't offer Wi-Fi. Uh, we don't offer food. So the first thing about the bar is the bar was a place I saw where women were generally excluded. Some of the prime customers who got those key seats got all the attention from the bartender, and their backs were to everybody else. So I took that away. We just have a service counter. 
Um, and also, you know, we wanted women to feel comfortable. We wanted kids to come. We wanted all generations to be there. You can bring your dog, your ferret, your cat. Uh, and it's worked out. We're, you know, in, in a way, we're like the front door of, you know, North Seattle. Everybody comes to the brewery. Um, we've had weddings and uh, proposals and celebrations and bat mitzvahs. And, I mean, all kinds of crazy stuff happens. Um, and beer matters for that because it really does, uh, for how we see it, no one is excluded. Everyone is welcome. There's no private reservation, no private seating. It's all communal seating. Um, it matters because it can truly help form community. It's a place where we can all go down regardless of who we are, how much we make, who we voted for, what we look like, what we're wearing. We can sit around each other. Uh, and I think that's really, really important. Um, so beer matters for that. Beer also matters because uh, it's a way to express a passion for quality. Beer touches key things from agriculture um, you know, with our hops and our barley, wheat, millet, rye, et cetera, yeah. um, to water. And water conservation, water quality is obviously key. No water, no beer. And um, that allows us, uh, my wife Sarah and I as the founders and activists, as uh, an opportunity to talk about issues that are larger than just, um, you know, what's in your glass, what's in your can at that moment. It To hopefully use our position to subtly make a bridge between the importance of what you're drinking and how it got there and the people behind it. Um, so beer matters for its opportunity to allow us to start a conversation that's beyond the glass or beyond the can. Um, and uh, lastly, beer matters because it really is a place um, with the best of intentions, you can express an endless creativity and quality. And hopefully we have an audience in this craft beer um, movement that it is now. Um, that will continue to appreciate true quality, true dedication to uh, craft. And that is a treat, and it's it's a rare thing in this world. So to me, Beer Matters, because it really does make a better world, a better community, a better place, and a great platform for conversation. So Beer Matters. It also helps pay the bills. <laughs> and that matters a whole hell of a lot. <laughs> well, absolutely. Uh, I mean, you, you have a 100 employees, 55,000 barrels. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're, you're no small brewery these no. days. I'm I'm curious that like, so on your we talk a lot about community uh, if you're in and around the beer space mm -hmm. uh, there's there's this whole you know community that that is talked about and it's usually done in, in terms of numbers and I guess the the numbers that exist are you know craft is 13 or so percent of the overall you know marketplace or yeah. you know it's uh, there's eight thousand breweries or there's you know it's usually done in a numbers thing mm -hmm. community though. And I've been thinking a lot about this uh, over the last couple of months and sort of reconnecting with people and trying to be more present in, 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 in where I am personally. It, it's so much deeper. Like numbers are just sort of superficial. Mm. Yeah. And, and I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm curious as to your, your take on how beer fosters a community and how the space that you've created is – is it unique to where you are or is it really indicative of what you think is happening elsewhere? I think, ooh, deep question, John. Uh, let's see. So I, I think, uh, no, what we're doing isn't unique and I hope it's not. I'll put it that way. Um, and I don't think it is. You know, as I've traveled around the country for the last decade in, um, you know, various <laughs> craft beer bars, events, visiting friends and colleagues and other breweries. Um, no, I really don't think it's unique. I think that, 
that is one of the things that's sustained craft beer. That that idea of community at its most basic essence. A good beer brings people together. It's that simple. A good beer with good intention in a good space with people who care about something more than you know just turning the next next plate of buffalo of, of buffalo wings mm-hmm. and um, you know getting your bill up high. That they're actually really interested in you hanging out and listening to why they do what they do. Listening to there was the story behind that Hefeweizen that you know they served you with actual pride. Where did they get the yeast? What's the story behind the grain and the hops? Um, how difficult was it to you know to brew that beer when you had a solid fermentation? Which those ideas that we're actually talking to you know each other about something that is not uh, you know necessarily divisive in these times of extreme divisiveness. Um, beer really is you know a place where. Uh, a space where we can come together and relax. And it has been that way for millennia. You know, it's not meant to be something where you and I sit down and try to out-impress each other uh, over, you know, how hard was it for to get this particular bottle and to lay it down and um, you trying to impress me with what you think you know about blending and venting and barrel aging. And um, I think it's much more of an egalitarian space. Um, at least I hope it continues to be that way um and then uh as far as like the actual physical spaces um you know within craft beer the great thing to me about the craft beer movement is this explosion of the number of breweries we have better beer all around this country we have better beer in um you know more remote cities that didn't have access to it and it gets and filters all the way down to the neighborhood level and that's one of the core things where we're not you know, we can go in almost any neighborhood in this country now, and you can walk around to your local. And your local is actually somebody who's making something. Yeah. Right? They're not a branch of the latest franchise, and no disrespect to the franchises. Um, but there is a difference when you and I put our heart and our soul and our money in our homes um, and everything else we own uh, behind opening up, you know, a local establishment. It tends, we tend to ingrain ourselves in that community. We give back to the firefighters. We support the police. We give back to the local schools. We give back to the local charities and issues that are, you know, relevant and dominant in that community. And that, to me, that's just community. It's when we invest in each other. We're engaged. We're invested. We depend on each other. Um, And at the best, I think craft beer represents that in a really unique and distilled way. Before you got into beer, and I guess you're still an attorney, I imagine, but but you were... Recovering. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but but you were also involved as a community organizer. You've worked mm-hmm. as an environmentalist well before your beer time, and it's obviously stuff that's continuing there. Yeah. Are there parallels? Are there continuations of – I mean, we've talked about community a little uh-huh. bit, but are there, there parallels to what you did previously that led you to open a brewery? Uh, well, there are absolutely parallels to what – uh, how we run the business, okay. yes, and how we formed the brewery. Um, the brewery was formed, you know, like many great ventures, um, you know, because we really were desperate. Um, and I never thought that I would be able to turn, you know, my homebrew passion of prior to the brewery to Fremont starting, um, you know, last 15 plus 17 years into an actual business. But uh, I found myself um, out of a job with a family to support um, and I couldn't stomach the thought of going back into law. And I made the leap into starting a brewery. At the time, it was the sixth brewery in the city of Seattle. Um, really? And that was only a yeah. decade ago? 
Uh, yeah, yeah more it was or about less, a decade yeah. ago. Uh-huh. Um, Which is crazy. Because and now like, they're 172. We've of, yeah, we've thought of <laughs> Seattle as a great beer town for a uh, long time, I think, mm-hmm. those of us. But that's amazing to me that number six in the... Yeah. It it it's, was a great honor and a great opportunity. Um, not that I knew it at the time. But um, to get back to the question, yeah, yeah. It, it, it really was, you know, I don't... I never like to gild the lily too much. And it was a matter of desperation. Um, but once I jumped in, uh, I realized, well, this is an opportunity to combine a lot of things that are, I'm really passionate about. So um, baked in from day one was, you know, more that, that justice aspect. So my our business model baked in um, full health care benefits, retirement, and then we've... For your employees, four hundred one k, yeah, and we've added benefits every year as we've gone forward. That's baked into the business model. It's like paying for any of my utilities. That's just part of our expense. Um, and I, and you know, Sarah and I are very proud that we've been able to offer that since the day we started. Um, it was actually month three, um, but uh, that aspect is clearly informed by our commitment to um, you know equity and equality. And for businesses to do more than just enrich a small amount of people, they can enrich their community, they can enrich their employees, um, and all boats be lifted, right, with high water. The second thing was, um, uh, as a Texan coming from a rural background, um, one generation off the farm, uh, I have an extreme focus on um, agriculture. Mm -hmm. And we all know without farmers, we have no food. We all know that without clean water, we have, well, no life. Um, And beer is a great nexus. Right, it involves the agriculture with our, both of our ho- our hops and our grain, and the water. Obviously, is the majority of you know what we put into our beer. And prior to uh, becoming an attorney, I helped um, our one of our mayors get elected, Paul Show. And my ask was that I get to work at the utility and stop commercial logging in our watershed. We're one of two U.S. one of three. North American municipalities that own our entire watershed. Okay. So, and then we sell that water to all of our other local communities surrounding Seattle. Um, there's Boston with the Quabbin and New York, mm-hmm. and then Toronto has also theirs. So it's a very unique position, um, and I thought it was crazy that we were selling trees for profit out of our watershed instead of using the forest to actually help protect that you know irreplaceable resource. resource. Yeah. Um, and beer allows us to talk about water. So back to the question, yeah. what's the nexus? Beer allows us to talk about water. Beer allows us to talk about conservation. Beer allows us to talk about, um, uh, you know, declining salmon species and the importance of protecting their habitat. That also leads us protecting, uh, to talking about how important it is to talk about, uh, you know, preserving salmon in the context of our um, local orca population. So we and the Puget Sound benefit from having uh, a couple pods um, of a uh, relatively small um, but still really vibrant and thriving um, orca population but they rely on Chinook salmon and that's all about headwaters and conservation and uh, looking to the future and protecting water and water quality etc there's a nexus to beer we've been able to find a way to talk about all those issues while offering a really fun beer um, with uh, hops when we first started out we hooked up with uh, the Carpenter family, their oldest hop growing family in the United States, uh, one of the main families in YCH, Yakima Chief Hops. Mm-hmm. So and we each had this passion to um, try to grow the organic hop industry in Washington State. We're fortunate because the vast majority of hops used 
uh, and craft beer come from Yakima. Right. Um, but are not necessarily organic. No, uh-uh, no. Uh, in fact, when we started out, uh, the law was, the regulations were that you could sell organic beer without using organic hops. So, which infuriated me. Uh, we were organic brewery when I first started. Because that's, it's just a really silly feedback loop to tell the customer this is organic, but not actually support farmers who want to grow organic hops. Sure. The argument was that there's not enough variety and quality available to us on the organic market. True. Yeah. The falsity of that argument was that it's because you're not forced to use, there's no requirement, so there's no investment. So as a farmer, you have to understand what it's like to be in those boots. You don't make a three-year forward investment if there's no market for it. You can't afford it, right? They need some aspect of certainty. They need a contract, and they need the regulations being on their side. So if we're selling, telling the customer it's organic, and and so much of beer is associated with the flavor of hops, yeah. um, or the aroma, et cetera. Yeah, I think it's kind of it's very disingenuous. So uh, Sarah and I spent uh, helped form this group called AOGA, the American Organic Hop Growers Association, okay. with hop growers in Washington and Oregon and Sierra Nevada was the other brewery. Mm-hmm. Um, and we worked for years to lobby three years to lobby the FDA to change the regulation to require uh, organic hops if you're going to label your beer organic. We were successful. And then we formed a marketplace where brewers had come to this collection of farmers who were growing, and they could suggest the varieties and the volume they wanted for that next growing season. Okay. That faded away as it no longer became necessary because the organic hops were just so plentiful. Now we have eight times the acreage of organic hops, 15 times the varietals available. You can get almost anything organic these days, from your Amarillo's to your Citrus Mosaics. And part of that movement was we... Needed that we need. We knew that we needed to not just change the landscape um, to re- require you know organic hops be used for organic beer, um, but show people what it could taste like. Um, I don't want to throw it, anybody under the bus, but there weren't a lot of great quote unquote organic beers out there. Well, that's what I wanted to talk about. I mean, it, it, there was. <clears throat> I think people felt good if they were so inclined to buy a mm-hmm. lot of organic beers early on. Yeah. But after a six pack of them, and you started seeing what else was down the road, it's. It, it, and and the price point as well for yeah. some of the organic beers like it just yeah. became it was a t- it was a tough decision i think for a lot of people to reconcile with mm-hmm. and organic has been and i think because of that it's probably been a tougher road back for a lot of you at this point because mm-hmm. there was you know even if you look at beer in the late 90s early 2000s where there was a lot of breweries that flooded the marketplace and sort of diminish the, the overall quality of beer craft suffered because of that mm-hmm. yeah, in the arguably. niche thing you know yeah i'm mean, arguing yeah sure but yeah, like <clears throat> but in the organic space it was sort of similar of mm-hmm. you know sure i feel good that my dollars are going there but i also want to drink something that i that i enjoy um yeah. you mentioned that when you first started you were you were all organic when you first started mm-hmm. yep and that's obviously changed as you've yeah you've you've, you've gotten there what was that decision like uh, that decision was um, realizing that uh, we can't translate a little bit to what you were saying. Um, you know, we can't translate all this increased cost, you know, four or five times the raw material cost into a price increase for my customers. <clears throat> the only way to do that was, and to run a, a organic um, business, was to send my beer a mile wide and an inch deep around the country so I could find those pockets of people who actually were willing to pay for, you know, $3 more a six-pack sure. for their values. 
Um, <clears throat> I didn't find any rationale in that. It seemed like the greater of two evils rather than staying local, investing local, and having a lower carbon footprint. So uh, I moved away from that but started an organic line, uh, the Kucha Canyon Project, with a group of farmers. Um, and uh, out in Yakima, um, you know, including the carpenters. And we started off with... Um, uh, about a quarter acre of land. And the idea on that was we were going to use it to uh, test out varietals and methodologies of growing organic hops so we could start to invest in more exciting, um, more cutting-edge varietals that were available on the organic market. Yeah. But to do that, we featured it all in this beer called, we launched at the time, called the Quitchy Canyon, where the far farm is. The Quitchy Canyon um, Organic uh, or Fresh Hop Pale Ale. And we didn't even mention that it was organic. Because that's what, to me, you know, I think organic's great. But at the end of the day, people buy on flavor. They're not going to drink a beer based on their values. Um, and that's, you know, that's good. That's, I think, as it should be. When you're drinking a beer, I think the beer, in many instances, should be secondary. What's primary is our relationship. Like, yeah. you and I are getting together. We're having a beer. We're catching up our families, our jobs, our life, whatever we're talking about. Um, and beer's a, 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 you know, way to help that happen. Um, if it takes center stage, then it becomes, in a way, kind of, I hate to do this um, to my friends in wine, but kind of like the worst of wine, where it's all we're talking about is the glass, the can in front of us and the yeah. beer inside of it. Talk about it. I want you to. There's a great story in each of our cans. Um, but I really think it should be, you know, the forum, not the topic for when, uh, where we're talking. So we don't we didn't really push the organic thing, but this beer became really popular. We started winning awards and selling out, and it was just, you know, it was a great great success. People then realized it was organic, and we saw a greater acceptance of what organic beer could be. And we since now we run six acres, and we've uh, and this is all fresh hop. And yeah. We've taken that fresh hop thing and pushed it over the last decade. To um, last year, we had the largest fresh hop release in the world. Okay. Uh, which is called the um, field of ferment. And that is just bringing more attention, more focus, more sustainability back to our farmer um, partners in the Yakima Valley. Uh, so I think, you know, to get back to that question of activism and what beer can do, there are a lot of ways that you can get in. And, you know, you're not hating people over the head with why they're wrong or what they should be thinking about or, you know, don't enjoy your beer. Listen to me rant and rave about the, you know, importance of organic uh, hops or um, or barley but you know it, it feels good to know that look I'm I'm part of this community I'm part of this craft beer community I'm supporting this brewery and by doing so I'm actually supporting all these other values that actually I'm on board with we have our whole uh, the Cascadia Grains Project which we started with um, King Arthur Flower Oregon State University and Washington State University about six years ago mm -hmm. and the idea was to start uh, to keep farmers on their land by increasing the value of um, their uh, their dirt over winter when usually we're planting barley because uh, it grows as deep as it does tall, so you can turn it over in the spring. It's a great fertil natural fertilizer. Um, but that was just all they were doing. They were you know, putting feed barley there and just turned it over for fertilizer. Well, lucky us, um, between the communities we identified, brewing, distilling, and baking, and then we brought in food later, um, we all use grain. Yeah. We're all part of that fermentation, you know, cult. Um, so we launched this program with the universities and King Arthur Flower to uh, establish a local uh, heritage grain community to keep some of these land race varieties, these old varieties that have maintained themselves, land race varieties, 
alive uh, and to you know let our customers see that these there's a we're basically eating and drinking um, you know about two percent of the varietals that we have available for us in barley um, there's this plethora of richness out there which all bring different flavors to the table and to the the, um, the food or the spirits or um, the beer but to do that we have to give the farmers an incentive to do that so we started the Cascadia grains conference so we could help build this economy and then the next question was how do you do it because you need a maltster for it we yeah. all need malted grain um, so we helped start you know, all these multi grain uh, uh, malteries now we have six in Washington State alone really okay. um, yeah and there were four in the country at the time and there are uh, God I just was just looking at the craft Monsters Guild website um, I think we have somewhere around 95 in the country as we speak Wow uh, and it's really cool to see this whole movement take off from the Hudson Valley um, with Andrea and Valley Malt sure. um, over in Massachusetts. Uh, you see in the Midwest it's taken off, and obviously the Northwest, it's yeah. you know a vibrant part of our community. Um, and that's you know all how the beer is a way. One, it's, it's how beer matters. Beer allows us to sit here, and instead of me telling you about how I put Cracker Jacks in my you know, pale ale, um, here I am talking about the things that really I really care about. Um, you know, conservation quality, um, making a lasting change and supporting farmers in the fields that we all depend on. So beer matters. Do you have <laughs> numbers though, or is it more an- anecdotal when it comes to the customers that you have, not just who come into to, to the brewery itself, but who are buying your packaged beer, Right. how much what you just said and how much work you've put into these various programs actually resonates with them versus you're just making a tasty beer. Uh, you know, I mean, frankly, I hope that the first thought is that's just a tasty beer. Okay. I don't want the I don't want what we do in our projects and all the other projects that have been inspired that and uh, from other breweries. I don't want them to be activist beers because we all get quickly tired of being yelled at. Um, you know, do you or, get yelled at? Uh, I get yelled at. Oh, well, I have kids. Okay. Well, <laughs> I've been married for twenty years and I have a hundred employees. I, I I always get yelled at. Um, no, I rarely get yelled at by customers and whatnot. Um, uh, no, thank God. Um, I try you, not to you've be... been fairly upfront, you know, you, you, on, on your yeah. website at the brewery, like you talk about climate change, which can mm-hmm. be, you know, uh, a hot button issue for some people who like, don't believe in science. Um, you know, you talk about other, you know, other things that are yeah. important to inclusion. You talk about, uh-huh. um, it, it, yeah. there's so many things that the brewery do that, that, marriage equality sure exactly yeah. that that there's a lot of folks who say keep your politics keep your science keep mm-hmm. your ex out of my beer sure and I, I totally get that so I think and you know I, my typical response is that's fine I, I think that's a decision that we all should make if you don't like what we do or how we spend the money that you give us um, you know be it on plant parenthood or our you know support for um, pride or any of the other you know environmental conservation issues we put our our energies behind don't you shouldn't, actually, because it won't be an enjoyable experience for you, and we don't want your money. Um, there are a lot of options for us and for you. That's fine. That's the greatest thing about choice, and that's all I want is folks to have a choice. Um, I think, fortunately for us, you know what you're getting. But I don't think um, people, when they're buying Fremont beers of any color or stripe, uh, I don't think they're leading with politics first. I don't think most people understand what we've done with the Coochie Canyon Project and yeah. the organic hops. 
in that market and how many farmers have you know been able to add that extra line of business how that next generation has been excited to actually take it over from their old stupid parents and run because every generation wants to be better than their parents yeah of course um and run the organic business and grow with it or how the cash great gadia grains project really has helped you know start this revolution of craft malting and heritage grain conservation around the country i don't think people you know lead with that and i really honestly hope they don't i want them to understand to first think man i love these beers like these are fremont makes phenomenal beers from our fresh hop series to you know our pale ales to our barrel aged stouts and then later if they're so inclined they'll learn that hey you know there's actually a lot behind it that supports values that maybe they support that's an added bonus and i really think that's what beer is not a you know it's not a bullhorn it really is something that I think should is like a social lubricant. It helps us talk about things we care about. And if that's part of it, so much the better. But we're not doing it to really – we're doing it because it's the right thing. We're not doing it because I want to take center stage in your conversation when you're having a beer. Um, we're doing it because it's the right thing. If no one ever knows all that we've done, I honestly don't care. Our mission and our goal was accomplished by the mere fact that we were able to bring this to bear, put it in a can, and you bought it. That's because that, our goal is not to change people's minds. Yeah. Our goal is to support the farmers, right? That's The rest of it is, oh, that's interesting. Um, but it's kind of here today, gone tomorrow with most stories. Our goal is just support the farmers, create sustainability, diversity in the marketplace, and keep these people incentivized to stay on the land for generation after generation. No farms, no food. No farms, no beer. No water, no beer. And that's a sad thing. So it really is. It's not about the public perceptions. Um, you know, I'll leave that to full-time activists these days. Yeah. Um, it really is about just focused on the farmers. Uh, and so far, I think you know we've been a success in what we've done um, to, in that regard. More with Matt Linscombe of Fremont Brewing coming up. But first, this episode is sponsored by Cigar City Brewing. Cigar City's El Catador Club was founded in 2013 to foster a community of beer lovers that appreciate their most ambitious and interesting brewing projects. After paying the membership fee, you'll have a chance to get seven special 750-milliliter bottles of barrel-aged beer when they are released. Be the envy of your beer friends and give your seller something special. Learn more at CigarCityBrewing.com. And now back to a conversation where we'll soon be talking about barrel aging, recorded directly and recently at the Big Beers, Belgians, and Barley Wines Festival in Colorado. You mentioned the barrel aged stouts, and this is one of those categories uh, where, gosh, I guess in the last 15 or so years, like it's really sort of taken on a life of its own. They mm-hmm. are well sought after, they are uh, you know, traded, they're talked about, they're revered, and there's a lot out there. Yeah. Um, the ones that your brewery makes, I think, are in that rarefied air of uh, being among the most sought after, or you know, the the most uh, you know, people want to check into them, or at least say that they've had them, or you know, will line up outside of your brewery and uh, mm-hmm. you know, in order uh, in order to get them. How early on did you decide uh, in in the brewery's history to start monkeying around with barrels, mm-hmm. and then what was the original intent? For that program, uh, yeah, good question. It has been a lot of fun to, you know, be a part of this. Um, you know, secondary revolution within craft beer, the barrel revolution, <laughs> uh, and it's you know it's it's gone up and it has gone down, right? Um, the number and the proliferation of the um, options out there is large, um, larger, but the volume is necessarily increasing. Um, so it's you know, uh, 
I enjoy it. To back to your question, um, uh, it was day one. So really, day one. Yep, one of the first ever brews was uh, put in a barrel. Um, as a stout, as like an imperial stout, or yeah, yeah, and um, it's it actually became um, the bourbon abominable or the bee bomb. Um, but the why, uh, there were few options out there that were available. Um, and as a home brewer, you know, you bring that whole kitchen sink mentality of, yeah, why not? Um, some of it works out, some of it doesn't. Um, but I was just, you know, personally challenged uh, to understand. I, I knew enough from my, you know, previous failures that uh, at, a, at a home brew, at a home level, that um, what you brew to age on wood or in wood um, is a completely different beer. Um, completely different wort than what you brew to actually be consumed in a relatively short amount of time. Yeah. Um, so that I knew I had that understanding through failure. Um, and the rest of it was curiosity. I think as brewers, if you're not driven first by curiosity, um, you probably won't end up in a good place because, you know, there are too many headwinds that push against you. Um, too many people who say it's good or bad or whatever it is. Um, so it really was just that pure curiosity, which I hope drives the best of the craft brewers today. Um, wanted to see what would happen wanted to see if we could actually make something that i thought was um you know contained quality so the first one was i, I know i needed to understand the word but first of all i had to understand the barrel mm-hmm. right so i didn't change i had a the bourbon abominable or the abominable ale winter ale um, that i brought and scaled up from my home um and that was a winter offering and i didn't change it it was an eight percent beer i just put it into the barrel um I wanted to see, I knew that the provenance of the barrel was important, so I was able to source um, uh, barrels from this amazing guy, Crazy Tom, uh, who was like the Pied Piper of wood for the West Coast and other breweries. Um, but he connected everybody from, um, you know, Stone to Matt of Firestone and uh, eventually Tommy Arthur and then all the way up the coast. And he would just bring beer from all of us all around. Um, and cheese from the Midwest. He's from Wisconsin. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that's fun right off the bat. Yeah. Oh yeah. When Tom rolled into town, uh, work stopped. Okay. Yeah, work absolutely stopped, and the party began. Um, so he was uh, he was a great influence on a lot of us. But he had access to not just wood, but good wood, and you knew where you got it. So I could buy barrels from dis- distilleries, certain distilleries. I could actually get the provenance of that, and then buy my age. Right. So I knew I wanted a certain age. I knew I wanted a certain profile for my whiskey because I always also like bourbon. I wanted to see if that translated. So I just took this beer, was able to get, uh, it was like uh, 18 barrels from Tom for that first year, put it in there and let it age um, for, it ended up being 14 months, but tasted it at three, tasted it at six, tasted it at 12, and eventually pulled out of the barrels um, at 14. And that was uh, two th- our 2010 uh, Bourbon Abominable. Um, it was a good beer. Um, it was not meant to be aged very long, right? Because um, it was only 8%. Yeah. So then the n- next iteration I did for the 2011, a half of that original uh, 8% abominable, and then half of the worth that I brewed just for that barrel based on what I'd learned from the previous year. Uh, and that was in 2011. I liked that. It was better. It actually had better legs. It had better mouthfeel, better body, better depth, better expression of um, the wood and the wort. Um, and then 2012 became the first completely dedicated work just developed for the wood, 
right? And that became B-bomb over the years. Um, and now we make a lot of it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and 18 barrels the first year. How many barrels did you guys use last year if you had to uh, take a snap at it? We did, as far as bourbon barrels, um, we did, uh, we emptied and bottled somewhere around 1,500 barrels. So last year. Cool. Um, yeah, and shipped all over and traded all over the world, which is the really fun part for me. Um, so that's uh, that's where we started, and we started scaling, the progr- scaling up the program. Each year I would take money I didn't have um, and work it with Tom and try to, get, try to double the program every year. Um, and the other thing was time and blending. So uh, I realized early on that I wanted our beers to be um, – like a Solera effect or a blended uh, mm-hmm. blended release. So we have uh, a percentage of, uh, it's about, um, it depends on the beer because you have to um, be flexible and read the barrels. The barrels really tell you where they want to go. Okay. Right. So roughly speaking, for a beer like Abominable, it's roughly aged for 12 months, right? Um, each year is a little bit different because the barrels express themselves. Sometimes they're really hot. Sometimes they're deep, right? Um and uh, they don't shouldn't be aged as long, um, but it's you know roughly sixty percent the twelve month, and then twenty percent a two year, and then either a younger six month version or about a year and a half in between based in the barrels. But that ratio of you know we have about a twenty percent of a two year version every year. I take twenty plus another X percent for my seller, and I put that aside, and that just stays in the barrels. And ages, and then I blend that back for the next year. Hmm. And usually, you know, it's like a third year vintage with a younger, slightly in between age, between a year and a year and a half. Um, for some of the beers, like Rusty Nail, another one we've um, started doing. And Rusty Nail, for those who don't know, is uh, oh yeah, Rusty Nail uh, is a beer that uh, we brewed for the first anniversary of um, Pine Box, a great beer bar in mm-hmm. Seattle, Capitol Hill neighborhood. Yo, Ian, um, <laughs> and it is. Uh, it is a 18-month-old um, bourbon barrel oatmeal stout <laughs> with um, brewer's licorice in, on the hot side in the boil, in the water uh, whirlpool, mm-hmm. and then aged on um, cinnamon bark anywhere based on the year in the bark from 12 to 48 hours. And then we pull that out, aged in um, 15-year-old bourbon barrels for 18 or more months, and blend that back with a variety of vintages. Yeah. So that's the Rusty Nail. So it's become a fun beer for us. Um, and, uh, you know, that's aged at a base of 18 months. So, And we have beers that we've aged, you know, at, at a base for 24 months. But there's a, there's a limit. Sometimes time is your friend. and But I think often, for my palate, too much time undermines the beer. I want the barrel always to accentuate, never to dominate, right? It should be a part of the beer, but the beer, it should always be a beer. When you have hopefully one of our barrel-aged beers, um, hopefully your impression is, wow, this is a great beer. I appreciate all the other things that cascade out of it, but the beer should be dominant. So that's our barrel-aged program. Well, I but there's yeah. such reverence for it and people try to you know trade for it or they, they yeah. stand in line for it. They're, they're, they're excited about the beer uh, that comes out of your barrel-aged program. And I think there's a lot of breweries that are putting out barrel-aged beers that, you know, there, 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 there's interest, but there's mm-hmm. not this rabid fandom that seems to surround yours. And there's only a handful of breweries, I think, in the country that have this sort of, you know, have, have sort of captured this 
the zeitgeist or captured right. this, you know, this momentum or captured this interest or whatever the, 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 the word is. Yeah. Do you have any idea of what that is born from? Was I, it? No, um, no. But if anybody does, uh, Matt at FremontBrain.com. I mean, it's, you know, we're extremely good looking and really funny people. Uh, I, you know, hell, I don't know. Um, I, honestly, I don't have a clue. Um, my, I could tell you what I hope. Sure. Um, it's not coincidentally why we brew the beers. Um, we brew it because for us, it's a continual challenge. It's a continual exploration and a playground where you get to toy with oak in a very porous environment. Right, because the oak expands and breathes and takes on oxygen um, yeah. over the course of your season, and we don't do climate control for our um, bourbon barrels. Our bourbon barrel—they are. If you drive by our production brewery um, in the edge of Fremont in Seattle, in North Seattle, um, all the windows are right there, and they, you can see all of my barrels, or at least the first layer, um, and they're exposed to the weather as yeah. it is. So as it is in our warehouse, um, to just. To, to be part of that journey, to be part of that exploration, to be able to um, do our best to adjust to what each year's um, release when we open all the barrels, what that brings to us. Yeah. Um, God, that's really motivating. We have, I mean, it's always barrel season for us. So we're always pulling out our barrels. We do two rounds of sensory and uh, two rounds of lab for each and every barrel, right? So we test it out. We have a full sensory panel that goes through each barrel. Twice before the final release, it goes through full lab for um, you know errant biologics and micro uh, that come in because we don't want that, um, and you know we're always in wood and beyond focusing on quality, focusing on passion, being open to the exploration of the you know changes year to year, um, barrel to barrel, release to release. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe people will pick up on that. Maybe that inspires them. Um, Jesus, I knew, I, I wish I knew, but I know that's why we do it. Um, we do it because it's one of the greatest expressions of quality and timelessness that we can put into, you know, this crazy thing we do, which is just making beer. These beers are brewed, um, to be laid down for 10 years, right? So we're just starting to pull into our cellar that I've laid down since the first year. And, you know, some have worked and some have haven't. Um, but I think most of them, they're, you know, the better ones are in that seven, you know, six year, and we'll see how we go forward. Hmm. Um, and that's just a challenge at the end of the day. It's purely a challenge. It's also a lot of faith at this point, too. Yeah. yeah. I mean, faith in the moment and then faith in the future. Mm-hmm. And if you're not taking a risk, I mean, where's the fun in that? Um, yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, but again, we do it just because it's what we really care about. Uh, it challenges us. Um and I think it's uh, it's something that just to play with wood, either you get it or you don't. You love being on that ride. You love the, like, it's every day is Christmas when you open up, you know, a hundred barrels and there's not a single barrel that tastes the same, right? I know any of our any of our friends here, especially this weekend, um, they would share that same experience. You know, it's part of the fun of doing your blending. Yeah. Um, and part of why I like multi-vintage blending. I've done that since day one and I only use single-use barrels. Um you know, because I really want that, uh, I want that joy of seeing what does this present to us this year, this barrel, this time, this release. So, I don't know, passion. If anybody does know uh, why our beers have been accepted in the way they have, um, first, thank you. And two, yeah, definitely let us know. Um, yeah, we just keep keeping on. Is there a hard seltzer in your future? <laughs> um, no. Uh, next question. <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't 
want to say too much. I understand. Hey, look, at the end of the day, you know, I am passionate. We are all passionate, obviously, about what we do in the craft space. Um, and I understand at the end of the day, we all have a responsibility as much as our customers want to talk about the latest trade, the latest release, whatever it is, the latest trend. Um, you know, at the end of the day, when you close the doors or open the doors in the morning, what we have is people who depend on us for their rent, their, you know, child, uh, their education, you know, their daycare, their mortgage, their food, their education, you know, obligations, whatever it is, their student loans, you know, we are employers at the end of it. And so if that's what you need to do to keep the lights on and keep your employees, um, I have nothing but admiration and respect for that. Um, and I think that's a hard thing, hard conversation because, you know, people look at us as, oh, it's all about, you know, you either selling out or not selling out. Yeah. Um, that's nifty, but what the fuck, what do you do? Yeah. All right. No one's sitting, the, sitting here and judging the fact that, you know, you might work at a company that I don't really support. Um, but you're just a customer. We take all comers and understand that in this world, we all need to survive. And that really is a, it's a funny transition in this industry. You know, I've, had my third career. I get it. Um, I have no problem with any brewery that's chosen to do any other variety of, um, you know, be it alcoholic or non-alcoholic beverage. We are fortunate enough to be in a position where we're not, you know, we don't have to do that. Um, But I will tell you right now, and it's maybe not the coolest thing to say, there are a few things I wouldn't do to protect my employees. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, And if it meant sucking it up and doing a seltzer and I had to uh, yeah I probably would um, fortunately we grew at 10% last year which is good it's at this good. size yeah. I don't want to grow more because I don't like the risk right now associated with it I've grown at you know 80, 70, 60, 50, 40% and that's just too much um, so I like where we are we're fortunate enough to maintain that you know zeitgeist as, as it is right now um, but no there is no seltzer in my future um but sure enjoy the hell out of this uh, arrowhead water that I'm drinking right now. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a good place to leave it. Matt, thanks okay. for sitting down. This was, uh, this was a lot of fun and really yeah. insightful into to what you're doing. So Thanks. thanks. It, it really was. Uh, next time we'll talk about uh, beer. Yes. Because <laughs> beer does matter. <laughs> beer does matter. Thanks again. Cheers. That's Matt Linscombe of Fremont Brewing. And it's conversations like this that I really enjoy because it really demonstrates the importance of what happens outside of a pint of beer and gives perspectives to drinking overall. So I hope you enjoyed it and that you have an opportunity to visit the brewery in person soon. A peek inside that barrel room is a real treat as well. And before we go, I want to thank everyone who has liked and subscribed the show and left reviews. It's helping new people find the show each day. And thanks to everyone who has reached out via email with suggestions on the show. I'm always trying to make it better and looking for interesting guests to talk with. We put out new episodes every Wednesday, and you can reach me at John Hall, that's J-O-H-N-H-O-L-L, at BeerEdge.com, or on Twitter at John underscore Hall. Nate Schweber does the music, Jeff Quinn designed our logo, Andy Crouch keeps his Christmas tree up until March, and if you want to learn more about advertising, you can reach out to Ryan Newhouse at Ryan at BeerEdge.com. And speaking of that, this episode was sponsored by Cigar City Brewing. Why not treat yourself to a membership in their El Catador Club? Cigar City created this limited member group back in 2013 for barrel-aged beers. You know they are first and foremost vigilant about quality and inventiveness, so each of the seven bottles you'll get as a member is going to be a world-class beer. In addition to the beer, you also get discounts to the Cigar City Tasting Room in Tampa and at the Oscar Blues Brewery in Boulder, plus an invitation to special events. 
See for yourself what all the fuss is about and get yourself a member to the El Catador Club. Learn more at CigarCityBrewing.com. This podcast is produced by Beer Edge, the newsletter for beer professionals. A subscription to Beer Edge provides readers with smart and critical insights into the business and culture of beer. We talk directly to the players making an impact and report stories our audience has not heard before. The team at Beer Edge offers up a fresh and unfiltered look at the world of beer. Subscribe at BeerEdge.com. And that's it. That's the show. I'm John Hall, and I'll be back next week to drink beer and think beer. Thanks for listening in. Cheers. Cheers.